you know, three weeks ago, we were sitting on the platform and we looked out when we came in and somebody said, what's up? You know, there's so many people here. And we decided, you know, well, you know, it's Falls Creek tomorrow and parents had to be here and all of that. But you know, it's funny, last Sunday night it's the same thing. And for the third Sunday night in a row, which is the only time within anybody's memory that it's happened, we've got well over 300 people in evening worship. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad and I'm thrilled. A lot of churches wonder whether it's even worth coming together to meet on Sunday night or not. And uh, I believe it is. And I'm delighted and I'm grateful to God for you that you're here. Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. It was literally coincidence, as far as my program was concerned, of preaching that the Peter passage where he deals with the matter of judgment and the Isaiah passage of terror, as he describes in great detail and vividness the gory nature of the final end of the wicked, should fall on the same day, but they have, and perhaps God has a purpose in that so that we can see how the Scriptures complement one another. Isaiah 63, 1-6, the judgment of Christ. You'll want to follow as I read and then keep the Scripture handy as the message will simply develop the text of this chapter from Isaiah's prophecy. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of crimson from Batsrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of the redeemed has come. And I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me or through me, and my wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood upon the earth. There will come a day as unreasonable as it seems to the physical side of our existence where we live in a very tangible and real world, where, where things respond to logic and where uh, data can be evaluated and tested and put into an experiment to verify it. It seems very illogical. It seems very unreal and otherworldly, even to those, all of us who believe the Word. But there will come a day when God will end the day of His patience, the year of His grace, and judgment will come. Time will run out. God will have had enough. And His foes will be trodden 
literally under his feet, his vengeance in that day will be complete. This final destruction of evil is the subject of Isaiah chapter 63 and of Revelation chapter 19. You might find it interesting to compare these two chapters if you're interested in the subject of judgment. When Isaiah sees him this time, it's all over. You know, when God's involved in something, it doesn't really take him very long as we reckon time to get it done. Uh, the prophets say God is not slack the way that we count slackness for God in his own time and when God is ready in the fullness of time, at the end of time, God with one fell swoop will just reap the harvest the righteous will be spared and the wicked will be punished and that is all there will be to it. And in this passage, the only description we have of the judgment is the one that God himself gives, the one that Christ gives. For the format here is the prophet questions, who is this? Now when he saw him in Isaiah 53, he knew who he was. He was Jehovah's servant who had been beaten for the sins of the people. The stripes of our iniquity had been applied to his back. His face was marred beyond recognition. But now all of that's gone. The suffering is past, and he has come as a righteous and victorious king to exercise final judgment. And Isaiah now, there's such a great contrast between his appearance as the suffering servant and his appearance as the reigning monarch. Isaiah doesn't even recognize him. Who is this? He questions, and Christ answers. It is all over. He is seen in this passage as coming from the land of the enemy after judgment has been executed. This warrior-type judgment at the end time will be complete and it will be devastating. In this chapter and in Revelation 19, we find two aspects of it. There is the battle, which is very brief. The sword of his mouth, the word of his voice, whatever he says or does instantly takes care of the enemy. There is the battle and then there is the judgment, as Revelation 19 tells us, at the great white throne where the wicked dead of all the ages and the wicked nations are brought before God for final judgment and their sins dealt with and their verdict pronounced. In that day, no one who is guilty shall escape and no one who is innocent shall be punished. We may not like to think about judgment, we may not like to hear about it. It may seem in a way morbid to consider it, but we cannot, by ignoring it, eliminate it from the Word of God. And as the Word, it is true. As the Word, it will come. As the Word, there is no question and there is no doubt that God will do all that He has said in the end of time. Judgment is real. And judgment is will come for those who do not know the Lord. And in Isaiah 63, he deals with the judgment of Christ. Let us consider just these six verses. In verse 1, we find there explained the identity of the judge. The identity of the judge. The question is asked, who is it? As the prophet questioned, 
and Christ answers the question. Now his appearance is changed. The trauma of struggle, the pain of punishment, the anguish of the cross is behind him. And we see him glorified in full possession of all honor which belongs to him. Now, Edom in the prophets represents those peoples who are the enemies of God. Often the prophets talk of Edom in a representative way of God's enemies. The city of Batsra was the capital of Edom, the headquarter of a government that was at war with God, not only with the people of Israel, but by virtue of their religion and the things that they believed at war with God himself. Now when we see him, all of his garments are red. He is stained with blood. And his victory, we are reminded, is not a bloodless victory. For like it or not, indelicate or not, the time will come when the wicked dead will have to pay with their life's blood by virtue of their rebellion against God. I remember another day, a day that seems quite different somehow. It was a day when a righteous man, a man on whom the power of God dwelt, a man who was God, was stained with blood as they took his body from the cross Doubtless as they wrapped him in the wrappings of death, those wrappings became stained with blood and they laid him away out of sight. But that was different, you see, because that was the blood of his sacrifice. That was the atoning blood that paid for the sins of every man who would accept the sacrifice. But now we see him. He has done all that he can to avert it. He has given His own life. He has died. He has sent us and all who know Him to tell the world that He forgives and that He saves and that He loves, but it was in the end necessary for judgment to fall. The Scriptures say that the life is in the blood and the more medical science learns, the more they verify that, how vital the blood is to life. And the life is in the blood. And in the law of Moses, God said, and elsewhere in the prophets, He has said those who spill blood in an open place, in other words, spill blood unjustly and bear it before the sky for the world to see and do not honor blood as the life of the one who has died, I will spill their blood on the rock and their blood before the world. And in the day of His vengeance, we see Him and His garments are stained red with the blood of those who would not receive the washing clean in His blood that He shed at the cross. In the first instance, it was His own blood, and now it is theirs that sprinkles His garments. Listen to the answer He gives as He establishes His identity as a judge in verse 1. Who is it, the prophet says? And he replies, it is I. The word I in the Hebrew is what is called the tetragrammaton. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's a four-letter word 
that was used for one purpose and one purpose only in the Hebrew language, and that was to, to designate God. It was the word that God told to Moses when Moses asked his name and he said, I am that I am. And it is I am that I am is what he is saying. This is Christ giving the answer. It is I. And how does he identify himself? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And you know, sometimes Scripture offers us great and wondrous object lessons if we'll just be simple enough to receive the object lesson. He identifies himself as one who speaks in righteousness. And how often has it happened in history and how often does it happen in our own lives that when the flesh rises to the surface and in some kind of pseudo righteous indignation we burst forth with harmful words we blame it on God but there is a lesson to be learned in he, he identifies himself as the one who speaks in righteousness and then he designates himself as the one who is mighty to save you know that's really a dead giveaway for in the Hebrew this is very similar to the name Joshua when he says, I, the one who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. For Joshua in the Hebrew is the same thought in the same word as Jesus in the Greek. It means Jehovah saves, God saves. And so here, in a very roundabout way even, is his name. Joshua. When Jesus was a boy... And very likely, the New Testament, remember, was written in Greek, but the Hebrews, especially the diehards, the scribes and the Pharisees, who didn't want their culture to become overly affected by the Greeks, still spoke the Hebrew or a very close variant of it, their language called Aramaic. And so rather than being called Jesus, as he grew up, Jesus Christ would have been called Joshua bar Joseph. Joshua, the son of Joseph. And here is a very cognate word that corresponds to that as he identifies himself as the one who is mighty to save. Bear in mind that this is a self-title. You know, men would describe God in many ways, and men do. But when God describes himself, he calls himself the one who saves, the one who delivers. Here is the identity of the judge. And then notice in verses 2 to 4, here is the isolation of the judge. You cannot look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ without being struck by the fact that he was alone. He was a lonely man. It's said of Jesus in the Gospel of John that he did not give himself into the hands of his followers, even those who loved him, because he knew what was in the heart of man. And yet he gave himself for us, but his task and his place in his life was a very lonely task. It was a very lonely life. He is isolated because he is infinitely pure and perfect beyond all men. His death was a death for sin. 
and there is no one else who could possibly have died that death. He had to die it alone. In verse 2, the wine press or the wine vat is mentioned. And you know how that goes. You've all seen it or read it in mythology or ancient history. How the grapes were put into the great vat and then men would get into the vat with their bare feet and, and stomp the grapes and until the juice flowed through a hole in the bottom of the vat and was collected somewhere else. And they, they kept stomping until all of the juice that would go was gone from the fruit. And that is a picture that Isaiah gives of the complete judgment. That's as Christ describes it to him, of the complete judgment that God will execute. It is very much like Revelation 14. This chapter corresponds to Revelation 19, but this metaphor, this word picture is found in Revelation 14. Beginning with verse 15, see how much like this passage it sounds. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he sat on the cloud and swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel said, The one who has the power over fire came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in the sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because the grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Very analogous, very similar in the pictures of the awfulness of the judgment that shall fall. Revelation 14 tells us that the grapes are ripe. This is where the songwriter got the symbol of him treading out the grapes of wrath in the Battle Hymn of the Republic from which the title of the novel by John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath, was written. It is pictured as a time when the grapes are ripe when wickedness has gone full circle, when God has done all that He can and still there is not repentance and still there are those who refuse, then judgment must fall. Again in verse 3 is the picture of the wine trough or the wine press itself. And it is like what God will do in the final day. For you see, the grapes were really obliterated and their identity completely lost by the wine press. I remind you, lest it seem too harsh, that the judgment God will bring is true judgment. It is just. It is no more than is deserved by all of us. And it is no more than God must do when many refuse to trust Him and to return 
His love. Now in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 last week, we saw the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of His wrath. And now in this verse, He adds to it the year of the redeemed. First comes the year of His favor, the accepted time, the day of grace, the year of grace, when men are free to come to God. Then follows the day of His wrath, which is the day of judgment. And that is followed by the year of the redeemed, which refers in Isaiah, as we'll see next week in chapter 66, to the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of peace on the restored earth that God will set up after judgment when He comes to restore the earth and set up His kingdom on the earth. There will be eternal damnation for the lost. There will be eternal heaven and fellowship with God for the saved. You know, it seems to me after the Scriptures, not from human logic, but from the Scriptures, that the righteous judge is the logical conclusion to the scriptural picture of the merciful Savior. For every parent knows that there is no such thing as love without discipline. And we know that it would be no act of love if God did not at some day call a halt to all of the wickedness and all of the rebellion and all of the harm and the hurt that evil does in the world. And so the righteous judge is really the logical end of the merciful Savior. It is an act of love to judge. And today there is too little condemnation for sin and too much pity for sin. You see, you don't have to reject somebody because you do not approve and accept and appreciate the sin in their lives. Very often, godly people have been ruined because they tried to lay down in the dirt with sin in order to minister. You cannot do it. You find that when your life is characterized by compromise in order that you may fellowship with people that need help, that when they have a problem, they won't turn to you because you're right there in the dirt with them. They'll go looking for somebody else. Too little condemnation of sin today. Sin is still sin, whether it's fashionable to call it that or not. Evil is still evil, whether society has decided we ought to be broad-minded or not. And wrong is still wrong, and black is black, and white is white, and night is night, and day is day. And if that's narrow-minded, I plan to stay that way. Because as certain as are the laws of physics and the rules of mathematics and the tables of multiplication, so certain and fixed and absolute are the standards of God Almighty and no man can change them. Wrong is wrong and sin is sin. And it is our part to love sinners and hate sin. And you know, Jesus proved it, and I believe it'll be true in our experience, that when you have genuine love for a sinner, you can hate the sin, and they'll understand it, and they'll appreciate it, and sooner or later they'll be reached by it, 
But oh, how tragic it is when God's people nod at sin and say, well, we love you, so you just go ahead and do anything you want to do. That's not love. That's not love. There's no love without discipline. There's no love without discipline. And just as a parent must with a child, not always give in to every whim of the child, but help the child to understand why things are as they are. So we, when we love someone who is a weaker Christian or someone who is no Christian at all, we must not always pat them and say, no, that's all right, you just go ahead and be wrong because we love you. We must help them and educate them and help them understand what's right because God's standards never change and they bow to the whims of no man. The judge was isolated because of his purity and his perfection. And then in verses 5 and 6, here is the individuality of the judge. Now, the thrust of verses 2 to 4 is this. He was alone. He says, I looked around. There was no one to help. I was alone. Nobody could do it. So my own arm brought the salvation that was required. But then notice his individuality. My own arm, he says, brought salvation. My own wrath or the act of judgment upheld me and I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their life's blood on the earth. His presence alone made the difference and it's that way today. It will be that way at judgment. The only thing that makes any difference in our lives is the presence of Jesus. And there will come a day when if the forces of right and the forces of evil were turned loose on each other, the battle might rage for eons of eternity. But because of his presence, as Revelation 14 says, he took one swipe of his sickle and the harvest was made and the battle was over. You see, when he is involved... Only his presence matters, and there is no battle as such, for no opposition can stand against him. Only his arm is needed, and that metaphor is repeated in Revelation chapter 19. Here is the identity and the isolation and the individuality of the judge. The innermost impulse of judgment is love. Every parent knows that. And we are told that God is like we are as human parents, only He's without our flaws and our, our faults. The innermost impulse of judgment is love. Judgment will come. Make no mistake about it. There's no doubt. Though it may not be fashionable, judgment will come. But there is good news and the good news is that God has put skin on, that God went to the cross, and that God has died and been raised from the dead so that all men who turn to Him might be saved and might be delivered. God has done all He can to avert judgment. Can you think of anything else that God could do to forestall it than what He has done? His message is our message. And it is the expression, it is expressed in an urgent task that we must share the message that those who repent and believe in Jesus will be saved. 
judgment will come. We will see it, but there will be no rejoicing. For as the heart of God, so ours will break that it must fall. And in these days before the hammer falls, he has committed to us the task of telling people that Jesus can save them. May we pray. Father, it's not a comfortable thing or a pleasant thing to consider judgment. And Lord, it is inconceivable to us that on a literal day when your enemies have gathered against you, you're going in one fell swoop to defeat them and blood is going to run six feet deep, 200 miles long. Lord, it's awful. We know that it is not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Lord, we know, though we try to forget it sometimes, we know that this ministry of reconciliation and this task of evangelization and this work of telling the lost is our work. It is our job. It is our task. Lord, I pray that you would just draw back the curtain a little bit and give us some kind of an understanding of how awful it will be when judgment comes for the lost. And Father, with a knowledge of their fate, may we go forth with no fear to tell people about Jesus. Father, make us what you want us to be. Knock the props of our self-sufficiency from us and make us every day in a position where we can only reach out and reach up and trust you. Father, give us a heart for the lost break our hearts. Father, we're at ease so often and we need to be urgently at the task. Give us a vision of what you can do. May we share it with others. Father, I pray that as a result of commitment and our awareness of need that the waters will continually be stirred as the bodies of those who are saved bear witness to the saving power of Christ. Father, reveal yourself to us as you will. Meet all of our needs, whatever they are. I thank you for what you are doing and shall do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand to sing hymn 349, Have Thine Own Way. And I don't know tonight what you need to do, but I know that the answer is found in Christ. If you need to join the church, you do that tonight. God wouldn't tell you that until He's ready for you to do it. If you need to be saved, today is the accepted time, the Scriptures say. Today is the day of salvation. The Scriptures say, when you hear His voice, harden not your heart. And so tonight, give your heart and your life to Christ. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to save you. You as a Christian, come to kneel and pray or to pray with one of the staff. And what God would have you do so that your worship may be real and all of your needs may be met publicly and proudly, you do it tonight. Who will be first as we sing? Why don't we trust Him with our lives? Which is what God's will is all about. Do what? We think our way is better. Okay, let me ask you a question. Let's talk about this for a second. Uh, what do you think? the writer of Proverbs meant when he said, he will make your path straight. What do you think he meant by that? He has to straight. He'd be the one to make it straight and straighten it out because if we try ourselves, we'd be on the path.
Okay. What else? Did you have something you were going to say? I'll Okay. All right. What else? Now. Okay. Sometimes I think, uh, and we're going to get into this more in the next couple of weeks. Sometimes I think that that uh, we get this idea, and I think we let Satan deceive us at that. Hello, uh, we let Satan deceive us at that. That uh, God's playing a game with us. You know that God's saying, uh, "You be nice, and I'll let you know my will." Uh, it's just around the corner. You're getting close, like a hound dog trying to track it down. Uh, God's not playing hide and seek with us in relation to finding His will. You know, we open up a can and say, "Ah, it's not here. You got to look somewhere else." God doesn't do that with us. God's will is made very plain to those who seek Him with their whole hearts. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If we will do what that scripture commands, to seek Him, to trust Him, all of that, if we'll do all that, God will make His way plain and we won't have to go around these little corners like we're playing a sniffing game trying to seek out a convict or something. God will show us very obviously what He wants us to do. But now God will not open the door any further than your faith will let it go. He's not going to show you down the road something if you don't have enough faith to trust him today. So that's the key to it. Uh, okay. Last thing. And then we're going to talk, we're going to talk next week about some ways that, that God reveals his will to you and the ways that you can get into the Bible and learn more about what God says about his will, the ways you can spend time in prayer, uh, some guidelines for you to go to people who you consider godly and ask them for, for information, for advice on God's will. Scripture verse that you need to know backwards and forward. And if there's a cornerstone of the Christian faith, that's it. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, question. Is your life a living sacrifice, or are you even on a spiritual altar? And we're going to talk next week about what Romans 12, 1 and 2 means because uh, you look at it in today's culture. We talk about sacrifice and we talk about altars and you think about, oh, that's, that's all alien. That doesn't have anything to do with me now. But there's some characteristics to that, to what Paul says here, that make it totally different from anything that Jews had ever heard about. One thing is, is a living sacrifice. The Jews didn't have living sacrifice. They killed the animals and then they sacrificed them. Now, animal sacrifices were holy and acceptable, but they were not living. And you can't do God any good dead. And you might as well be dead if you're out of his will. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a living sacrifice. We're going to talk about a lot of different things uh, as to specific ways you can find God's will. And uh, I hope that you'll study Romans 12, 1 and 2. I hope that you'll find some kind of commentary or something and read it and see what it has to say for you. Uh, there's some books that I think that you could use. And if uh, you ever want to go by the bookstore and get them or something, I think that would be very helpful. One of them was written by T.B. Maston uh, called Right or Wrong, which is guidelines for young people for Christian standards, living by Christian standards. 
it deals with ways that you can make decisions, sources of life, uh, how you can know what kind of decision God wants you to make. This book right here, God's Will in Your Life by T.B. Maston, is the best-selling book that Providence ever had to young people. And uh, I've given it to a couple of people, and I would highly recommend you reading it because it has some good things to say about how to find God's will. Now, one thing this book has, and we're going to talk about it probably the last session, Dr. James Dobson, who's written a book called Derek Discipline and a lot of other things. Some things we'll talk about probably the last session after we've wrapped everything else up is how do you deal with your impressions? Now, you know, there's a lot of times when we talk about God's will and you just kind of feel impressed that this is what God wants you to do. Now, are those impressions from God? Are they from Satan? Or are they just something you've made up in your own mind? And we'll talk about that and how much you can rely on your impressions because you see your impressions could either steer you in the right way or they could steer you the wrong way. We'll talk about how you can understand that. Now, you got any questions? I've been talking a lot tonight and I don't like to do that when I'm teaching as much. But I had to get some things over so we could get into some different areas. I want you to bring your notes from Breakthrough next week so we can talk about some different things in that, okay? Some things about Bible study and prayer and stuff like that. All right. Okay, any questions? Uh, one thing you need to remember is that God has a will for your life. Not for the church, not for a, a congregation so much, but as a specific will for your life. And he said that when he saved us, he would always be with us, that he would keep us, that he would control our lives if we would let him. And we went to see Star Wars about uh, two weeks ago. Like idiots, we stood in line for two hours almost to wait to get to see that stupid thing. But there was a line in there that stuck with me. A guy named Luke, I guess he must have been a Bible character, I don't know. But he's, anyway, he was, he was going through and he's flying through and he's trying to destroy this alien ship. And this voice came from a guy who had taught him about the force, which protected all the good people. And he said, remember, Luke, the force will always be with you. And he said it to Luke twice. First time Luke didn't listen to him. And he tried to take the thing and almost got killed. The second time, he said, remember, Luke, the force will always be with you. Trust your feelings. Trust your feelings. Let go and trust your feelings. And when he did it, he destroyed it just like that. Now, quick correlation. God is continually trying to say to us, remember, Mike, remember, gang, the force. I will always be with you. I will never leave you. And when we trust that and we rely on that, then we start hitting the target. And then we quit missing all the marks, and then we start zeroing in on what God wants us to do. Okay, see you next week. Well